It's day 36 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, today we are in Exodus chapters 19 through 21, where we arrive at a monumental moment in the Israelites' history as they arrive at their last campsite at Mount Sinai, where God will establish His covenant with His people, as well as the Ten Commandments, probably the one thing that even non-Christians know about. Now, we will be reading from the ESV translation by Crossway, if anybody is wanting to know which version we are reading from. And also, if you could please help us out by hitting that like button, that tells us that you're ready for Bible study. You are here, this is part of your day, and you love the Word of God, and that's why you keep showing up. Otherwise, let's go ahead and pray and jump into the Word. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy. We stand in awe of you today. We reverence your holy name your majesty, your greatness, your almighty power, your providence. We just thank you, Lord, for who you are in our lives, for being the great I am. Every single day when we have a new need, you are able to meet it. You are everything that we need in this life. You are the breath that we breathe. And so we just thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to be able to have life again on this day, to be able to come into your presence, to freely worship you. And so I just pray, Lord, that as we gather here together as brothers and sisters, that you will speak to our hearts in such a personal way, Lord. I pray that we will feel the unity that is within this fellowship, God. We have so many different denominations here in this space. And yet we all love you, Jesus, and we all want to see your glory revealed. And so that is what we're here for, to unite the church, to bring people together, all going in the same direction. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Please forgive us where we have fallen short, where we have crossed over the line, where we have hurt someone or hurt you. And I pray, God, if there is anything that we need to do right now before we come into this space to be able to get it right in our hearts so that we aren't carrying something in here, some sort of baggage that doesn't need to be here, I pray that you will help us to pause for a moment and just go do what we need to get done. Also help us to have the capacity to forgive other people, Lord, because we know that whenever we hold on to that, when we carry that throughout our lives, that it is truly unhealthy, even for our physical being. And please do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So it has been two months since the Exodus. And we are here starting in chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. So they are going to be camped here for a good 11 months at least. So the next 57 chapters will be right here at the base of Mount Sinai. Now the location of Mount Sinai today is still unknown. There are some archaeological remains that have pointed to certain areas, but really we don't know for sure. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So Moses at this point is the only one who has access to the presence of God. So he is their intermediary, the same way that Jesus is that for us now to be able to access the Father. And the Lord called to him, out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So in other words, don't forget, remember what I have done here and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now I went down a rabbit hole today trying to figure out what it means when he says things like I bore you on eagle's wings. I've heard many different stories, how eagles carry their fledglings on their wings and 
instead of buy their talons. Or I've also seen uh, stories about how they will push their babies out of the nest and allow them to kind of spiral to the ground. And then they'll swoop in right at the end and bring them back up to the nest. And it all sounds like these amazing spiritual stories. And I was so let down today when I found out that that simply isn't true. And I've actually heard those stories from the pulpit. And so I didn't honestly find anything that was actually true in nature that would relate to this. Now, we can just look at this at face value and understand that being under the shadow of any wing of God is going to be protection. It is symbolic of strength because we know that the eagle is a symbol of strength. So, there's all kinds of things that you can pull from that. But I was really hoping for a good meaty story today and I didn't find one. So, again, that is symbolizing deliverance and protection. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so, their destiny is based on what God has already spoken and what He has already done for them. So, he's starting to declare his covenant to Moses now, the Mosaic covenant, which will be spelled out all across Exodus and Leviticus. And a covenant, remember, is a binding oath or an agreement. When he calls them his treasured possession, this is showing that Israel is going to be used to be able to reach the entire earth, just the same way that we are. You know, when Jesus died, the great commission that he poured out to us was to go to all nations and make disciples. Verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, these are some pretty heavy words to say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I mean, to me, this sounds like they are setting themselves up for failure, but we do this. You know, we'll make empty promises all the time telling God, if He will just help me this one time, I will change my ways. Or we make a resolution to be different than we were last year, and then we fall backwards a little bit. And it's because we're human. You know, we all fall short. We miss the mark. We all sin. But where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So, it's important for us to come back whenever we realize that we're off course. So, heart check. Have you kept your end of the bargain that you made with God? Where might there need to be some steering back on course? And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So, this is only a piece of his splendor that they are going to be able to see in this cloud. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So, the Lord is telling Moses to have the people consecrate themselves, which means make them ready for this meeting with God. They need to brush their teeth, wash their clothes, and it was an outward expression of an inward readiness. And I thank God that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we really don't need to clean up before we come into His presence. I mean, every single day, I'm doing my devos in my PJs with my bedhead. It's kind of like how your spouse loves you in all of your mess, you know, with no makeup, you got stinky morning breath. However, whenever we go on dates, we don't go in our PJs and our bedhead. I mean, we get ready. So, whenever we meet with God, 
There's also a readiness that should take place to ready our minds and our spirit so that our time spent with Him is unhindered. And that will look different for everyone. Even though I'm in my PJs and I've got my bed head, I ready my spirit in prayer, and I typically will not answer phone calls or text messages, and I'll have a notepad next to me so that if I think of anything that needs to get taken care of later in the day or I think of a to-do, I just simply write it down so that I don't go into my phone and start scrolling and looking and searching and doing all the things because I don't want to get distracted. So heart check. How do you ready your mind and your spirit before coming into God's presence? Verse 12, and you shall not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now, this is huge. And it is really just because of the fact that his great majesty is going to be present there. It is holy ground. And I think sometimes we just think that God's just being mean by not allowing us to come within that boundary. But it's really just because of who he is, because he is so magnanimous in his glory, it is untouchable in a sense in our human frailty. And that's not a bad thing. This is a beautiful thing. And he continues in verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. I mean, at least he gives them warning, right? Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Now this word shot actually means shot with an arrow, whether beast or man, he shall not live. Now, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, if we think about the third day, there's a lot of significance in the third day, right? I mean, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. If we think about when Jesus is coming back, it's in the third day. And technically a day is a thousand years in the eyes of the Lord. And so if you look at it like that, well, how many years has it been since Jesus died? We are in what year 2024 now. And so, if you look at it that way, we're kind of in overtime. I mean, we're in that third day, which is why I believe Jesus is going to come back soon. So why not go near a woman? Why doesn't he want husbands and wives to have intimacy in this time? Well, there's two ways to look at it. Either we look at it as because of the seminal fluids representing birth and also blood representing death. Well, if any of that goes out, if any life-giving source exits the body, then you aren't fully ready to come into the presence of God. That's one way to look at it. But also, it could be because remember in the Bible when he says the only time that a husband and wife should abstain is when they agree to do so together for that time of prayer. And so, it might be just that sanctity, that holiness that he is holding to in this moment. Now, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people People in the camp trembled. So this was an assault on their visual, on their auditory. I mean, if you even think about when you're a little kid and you hear thunder for the first time and it's scary, or even if you hear like a loud siren, it immediately makes you like start to look around and say, what is that? So this was 
loud and it was increasingly getting louder. So it was like an overload on the senses. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So God is actually speaking audibly in this moment moment, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them, why is he putting up such harsh boundary lines between himself and the people? Well, again, it is just simply because of his mighty power and his holiness and his strength and the people in their own sin and unworthiness and unrighteousness just simply can't stand in that presence. But we thank God that Jesus actually opened that door for us. And anytime God sets into place a boundary or a limit, it's always out of love and it is always for protection. It's not because he's being mean. It's not because he's being a control freak. It's not because he's trying to keep you as a prisoner. He wants you to run free, but to do so within limits so that he can keep you safe. Now, before we move on to chapter 20, let's take a look here at the difference between Mount Sinai, which is where everything in the old covenant went down. And then when we look at Mount Zion, which will be significant in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews chapter 12. And this is where the new covenant was formed. So at Mount Sinai, there was a lot of fear and terror that was surrounding it, whereas Zion is love and grace, of course, with Jesus. Sinai, only Moses could go up the mountain into the presence of God, whereas with the new covenant, all are welcome into his presence through Jesus. Moses was the mediator at Sinai, Jesus, of course, being our mediator. There was blood sacrifice of animals that was required here, whereas Jesus's blood is the only sacrifice that we ever need. We see barriers and exclusion at Sinai, whereas there is an invitation on Zion. And here at Sinai, the law is formed, whereas Zion is more focused on grace. Here, Sinai focuses on the sin, whereas Zion focuses on forgiveness. But again, big things happen on mountains in the Bible. And now in chapter 20, we take a look at the law of God or the Ten Commandments. Now, keep in mind here that there is a difference between the law of God, which is the Ten Commandments, and the law of Moses, which we will see spelled out through Exodus as well as in Leviticus. So, it is the law of Moses that Jesus came to fulfill, and that is where we are set free from that law as believers, whereas we are still held to be obedient to the law of God, to the Ten Commandments. So, the law of God is given in Exodus chapter 20. Paul will refer back to it in Romans chapter 7. It is given publicly to all people. It is for all people. So, it's not just for the Hebrews or the Israelites. It's for all of us. And we are still 
to hold to it today. It is a protective law that actually gives us freedoms. And it is what is known as an apodictic or a general law. So it's not a case-by-case law that we will see in chapter 21 with the law of Moses. So starting off here in verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now with any of the ancient treaties, the first thing that they would do is to give a history of the relationship between the two parties that are taking place in this treaty. So that's what God is doing here. He's like, I am the Lord, your God. That is our relationship here. Let's not forget that. You shall have no other gods before me. So here we see him already stating the Ten Commandments. This is the first one. So this isn't, there are a hundred thousand different gods out there. No, he is saying the one and only God, and there shall be no other gods that you acknowledge before me. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here he is saying, listen, if you all are going to live in your sin, it's going to follow you for generation to generation. Whereas if you actually begin to walk in righteousness, my mercy is going to trump any of my wrath. And I think that that is amazing because a lot of the time we will look at the Old Testament God and just think of him as this God of wrath. But really, whenever you really start to understand the Bible and you really start to see his heart from beginning to end, you will realize that everything he does is in love, in mercy, and in grace. Now, we could probably do 10 heart checks today on the Ten Commandments, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to stop here on this one, this one of idolatry. And I'm not saying Dollar Tree, but now that I've said it, you're never going to be able to unhear it. But so many people were like, what's Dollar Tree? Last year in the comments, it was pretty comical. I think some of them were being facetious. But it's easy for us to think that we don't practice idolatry anymore if we aren't putting up shrines or creating golden calves. But it is still very much alive in today's society. I mean, if we look at what idolatry is, it's anything that becomes a God in your life, meaning it controls your thoughts, it controls your emotions, it consumes your energy, you might become obsessive over it. It's essentially anything that takes center stage in your life where God really should be. And it's where you're devoting most of your time, your thoughts, your energy. And these things aren't inherently bad, but what we do with them, is where it becomes an issue. So if we look at what some modern day idols are, it could be things like money, success, our jobs, our identity, our physical image, our hobbies, entertainment, our iPhones, technology, even our relationships, and even ministry and our children can become idols because we can sometimes be more consumed with the gift itself rather than the giver of the gifts, right? And we'll look to these things to bring us joy and happiness where only God can do that. Or we'll put our trust in them only to be let down because only God is truly trustworthy. And we look to these things for our identity or our validation. And then when we don't get it, we feel unworthy or we feel rejected. So it's anything that we love more than or hold higher than God. And the Bible says to flee from idolatry. So that doesn't mean we flee from the thing, but rather the way that we treat it. So hard check. Is there anything in your life 
that has become an idol? How can you redirect this gift to be honorable to God? Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, because his name is holy. And when we look at what it means to take his name in vain, it can be things like trivializing or regarding his name as insignificant. So we know that there are slangs out there where we damn things or we actually say the name Jesus Christ as some sort of expletive. So those are ways that definitely grieve the heart of God. It is using his name in order to advance evil or to curse. And the New King James Version Study Bible said that it is also thoughtlessly using it in worship. And I honestly sat there for a second. I'm like, what does that mean? What are your thoughts on that? To thoughtlessly use God's name in vain in worship. Because I tried to think about it. I'm like, when have I used his name in vain in times of worship? And I really could not wrap my head around that one. So I'll need a little bit of help there. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work you and your son and your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. So nobody, nobody is to work. Everybody's to be resting, worshiping or fellowshipping. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remember, Sabbath simply means rest. It is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing. There are benefits to honoring the Sabbath. Could it be considered religious? Yeah, it could if you treat it that way. But if you are honestly taking a Sabbath because you simply want to hold the seventh day as a holy day and a day of rest, then that's wonderful. So what does it mean to rest? Or what do you do on a Sabbath day? I've had people ask me that. So really, it is a rest day. It is kept holy by simply not working. Now, when we look at the Sabbath day in the Jewish faith, and there may be some other faiths that have stipulations or guidelines for their Sabbaths, in the Jewish faith, they have a table of 39 different categories of what they consider work. So you'll have the 39 categories, but you'll have a list of things within one category. So little things like tying a knot, or I think like turning on a light switch. I mean, there's all these different little things that you cannot do on the Sabbath day. It's pretty interesting to kind of take a look at the way that they value this day so much and they honor it and they want to keep it so holy that even the smallest little thing, they're like, we ain't touching that. You know, we we want to make sure that everything we do is resting, honoring to God, not putting anything to work. So this would have been on the seventh day, which in the Jewish calendar, that would be Saturday. It is patterned after creation, the way that God created in six days, rested on the seventh. And this day is for rest and worship and fellowship. And the benefits of it is refreshing. It is relaxing. There's no pressure on that day. You can look forward to it all week long. It is liberating. It is restoring. And I'm speaking from experience. Since I have instituted taking the seventh day off and not doing any work and just dedicating that day to my family and to having that time, even fellowshipping, 
it has been one of the most incredible things that I've done. Now, in the New Testament, Paul will tell us, don't let anybody judge you about the Sabbath day. And we're not going to fight here because I know that there are different sides who are very passionate about whether or not we still are held to honor the Sabbath day. You don't need to go in the comment section and start firing away. It's okay. You just have to know that there are people who either believe that we still honor it or people who don't. And then there are other people in the middle somewhere who say, I have a personal conviction to honor it. I don't know if we are technically supposed to still honor it as a holy day, if that is a commandment we're still supposed to stick to. But my own personal conviction, I still do. And y'all know that. So that's that's no news here. All right, carry on. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this is the only commandment that actually has a promise attached to it. Like if you do this, then this will happen. So if you honor your father and your mother, and what does that look like? This doesn't mean that you are their servant or that you are just bowing down to them all the time. Honor can look very different in different circumstances, but it always includes having courtesy, being respectful, treating them with care, placing them in high regard. Now, I know that there are some people who don't have good relationships with their parents. Perhaps they suffered from abuse or maybe their parents are just off the Richter scale in many different ways. So to them, I say, one of the best ways you can actually honor your parents is by loving them from afar and having that boundary because you don't want to put them in a position where they are going to then sin against you. So sometimes distancing yourself is honoring your parents. Doesn't mean you go talk smack about them behind their back or that you fire at them or you fight with them. I mean, the best thing to do is actually remove yourself from a toxic situation and honor them that way. That's my personal opinion. I'm no psychologist, but I have seen and I have actually counseled a friend in that way and they got it. But that promise that is attached to it is that you will then have a long life. Now, this doesn't technically mean a long timeline of a life because we know Jesus died when he was 33 and he was the most honorable person who ever walked on this planet earth. And then there was Adam who lived what, 930 years. Well, we can't say that he was the most honorable person to the father, right? So we're not technically talking about a length of time. I think it's more so talking about long life or a quality of life, richer or more fulfilling life if you honor your parents. Verse 13, you shall not murder. So here God is showing the sanctity of life. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery, sanctity of marriage, and you shall not steal. So the sanctity of property. Now these three commandments actually build a cohesive society. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So this is put in place to protect people's reputations and to make sure that there is a foundation for justice to be heard. Because back in this day, an entire court case was based upon the witnesses, those who would come forth give the details about what would happen and people would take their word. I mean, their word was just as trustworthy as cell phone video back in that day. But remember, bearing false witness is not just a blatant lie. I mean, it's a half truth. It's kind of twisting the truth. It's being sneaky with the truth. And it's also trying to tear down people's reputation, speaking against people in a false way. I mean, there's all different ways to look at what bearing false witness is. But ultimately, at the end of the day, bearing false witness has the intention to try to take down the person that you are facing. And so there is a saying that talks about before you say anything, 
think. Before you speak, think. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that or seen that, but let's take a look at what it means if you've never seen it. Think, this acronym, the T means before I speak, is it truthful? And is it the whole truth? Is it helpful? Meaning, is it edifying? Is it going to build the person up? Is it inspirational? Does it glorify God? Like, if I say this right now, am I bringing God glory? Is it necessary? Like, is what I'm saying just simply to tear someone down and make them feel bad? Or do I really believe that I tell them this and therefore something better is going to come out of it? And is it kind? And this makes sense here, especially on the internet nowadays. You know, we, we feel so strong behind our keyboard because we're not face to face with people. So we can just spout off whatever we want without thinking. So it's important for us as Christians, especially to make sure that we are honoring this and we are putting that out there before we talk are we ensuring that our words encompass all of these things? Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, coveting goes well beyond of looking out your window and being like, man, that's a nice car. I think I want to get myself a new car. What coveting is, is actually wanting more of what we already have enough of, or it is wanting it so badly. So this goes beyond wishful thinking. It's wanting it so badly that it creates such a desire within us that becomes uncontrollable. And it stems from really selfish desires. And so it will start to build up resentment and envy and jealousy. That's what coveting is. So it's not just a, man, that's a nice bag. I want to go get myself a new purse today, unless you can't afford it. And then that's a whole nother slew of problems. But plain and simple, don't covet. So if we take a look at the first 10 commandments here, the whole purpose of this law of God was to lead us into holiness it was to declare that these people, Israel, at this time, and now us, we are set apart if we abide by these things. We are different. This was for protection. It was to point to the need for a savior. How did it do that? Because in trying to abide by these 10 things, and it's only 10 things, nobody is able to do it. Only one person was able to walk this earth and obey every single commandment. The rest of us have all broken them. So that was Jesus, of course. He's the only one who is sinless. So these commandments were intended to let us know, oh my goodness, I'm not doing so good down here. I need somebody to help me. I need a savior. I need somebody to get me right in the eyes of God. And it also fulfills the law, the greatest law, of love, because again, all of these are created out of love. And if you look at every single commandment, you can see the love of God in it if you really think about it. So the first four relate to our relationship with God and commandments five through 10 actually relate to our relationship with people. So that tells us that God has a major concern for the way that we treat one another down here on this earth. He definitely wants a good relationship with us, but he also wants us to love one another. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And the second, just as important to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Okay, wait, how does that even make sense? You're saying, don't be scared, but God came to scare you. And really these fears, these words fear are 
pretty much the same in the Hebrew language. But if we understand the heart of God, once again, we know that He never intends for us to have that terror of Him, but He wants us to have that reverential fear, that worship, that desire to be able to be humble before Him. And if the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, if we just simply focus on the love of God, that is going to keep us from fear. And that is why it's so important for us to understand what God's love looks like. Because right here in these couple of chapters, it doesn't look so loving. But if you know and understand that His love is like the love of any father or parent who is going to put their toddler in a playpen or make sure that there are boundaries set up so that they aren't going out into the middle of the street— that's all out of love. Verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So in other words, he is saying, keep the altar simple. Why doesn't he want these big, gorgeous, beautiful altars? It's because he wants the people to focus more on the sacrifice than the altar itself. And he is implementing modesty here as well when he talks about the nakedness, or you can look at it as he is saying, don't bring any of that pagan worship to my altar, because some of the pagan worship did include sexually perverse acts. And that would make sense in the eyes of modesty as well. So in chapter 20, we saw the law of God. And now in chapter 21, we will see the beginning of the law of Moses. Now, even though we are freed from the law of Moses, it's still helpful to be able to guide us today in our own moral decisions or in our own ethics. And so we will see this across the next couple of chapters and also in Leviticus. Jesus refers to it in John chapter 7. It is given privately to Moses instead of publicly the way that the law of God was. It is intended for for the Jews or the Hebrews, and we've been released from it. It is a bit more restrictive rather than freeing the way that the Ten Commandments are, and it is what is known as caustic law or case law. So, meaning things happen, so now we got to create a rule. It's just like our justice system today. That's how all laws have been created. Something happened, they had a judgment, and that became the precedent for the next case. They would look back at this case and say, well, that's how we dealt with it. That's how we judged it. If anybody took law in, in, in college. That's what you find out. And so, that's how we form case law. And that's what the law of Moses is. These things are happening. So, now we got to fix it. We got to create boundaries. We got to put regulations on it. And it's good to keep this in mind because you can look at some of this stuff and be like, why are we even talking about this in the Bible? Verse one, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, exactly case in point, why is there slavery in the Bible? Well, what we have to remember is God did not create slavery. There was already slavery well within this community, well within this society. And now God is having to come down and lay the hammer down. And now some people would say, well, why didn't he just say no slavery? Everybody's going to die because it was an act of mercy. Once again, he has to put regulations in place so that people can actually follow it. He gives them a consequence. He doesn't want to 
just put people to death simply because there is slavery going on. Why would there be slavery in the first place? Well, some of the reasons is because families would become indebted to these people and they needed to find a way to be able to pay off their debt. So slavery was a common payment for these debts that they had. Or sometimes the daughters would be sold into slavery with the intention that they would become a wife to the child of that master. Or there may have been other crises. And then some people will look at this and say, well, slavery wasn't what we think of it now. This was more of a mild slavery. Well, I'm like, listen, I don't think we can look at slavery in any good way. So to me, I'm not going to justify it that way. But regardless, they were doing it. And when there was cruel treatment at any point, that was wrong. You can't look at it in any other way. He shall serve six years and in the seventh, he shall go out free. So this is God's intention is to set his people free ultimately. And they shall be set free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. But if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. So he doesn't get to keep his wife and children if the master was the one who gave him the wife. So sometimes it would be the children of the master who would marry the slaves. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, which remember the doorpost, if we remember what happened on the night of Passover, that pointed to the cross and his master shall bore his ear through within all and he shall be his slave forever. Now we can see Jesus all over this because Jesus came to the earth to serve. He was the ultimate slave. He was the ultimate servant. He wasn't forced to do it. He chose to do it. He loved his father. He loved us. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to do this for them. I'm going to stay with them. I want to stay with my bride. I want to stay with my children. But let's drive it home one more time. This is not God condoning or even encouraging slavery. In fact, it was because of the Bible that slavery was actually abolished. But this is his response to what is already taking place within society. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So this is being put in place to actually protect the daughters. So if you take on the eyes of God, you can see that all over this. You understand that he is saying, you know what? If that person doesn't want the girl, the family can come and buy her back. So the family can buy her back and then he shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, so here we see polygamy going on, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So knowing these things, this being put into place really would make families think twice about whether or not they're going to sell the daughter. Because unlike the males who could be set free after seven years, the women Women couldn't. They would have to either be bought back or set free with nothing to their name. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So in other words, if this was involuntary manslaughter, or if he didn't intend to kill, this was not first degree murder, there would be a place set up. And we will learn about this. It is what is known as a refuge city where they could 
flee and find that asylum. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, so first degree murder, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So they're not going to be able to run to the altar and be covered by it and think that it's going to protect them somehow because it's not. And the same way with our sin, you know, we cannot use the altar and the grace of God as an excuse to go out and sin. Yes, it does cover sin. It is where we are forgiven. But again, it is not an excuse to say, oh, I'm covered. I can just live my life in sin because ultimately that is actually walking away knowingly from God and going and living your life the way that you want to live. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. So isn't this interesting? The capital punishment that is being put into place, I understand for first degree murder completely, but it's interesting to me that it is whoever strikes his father and his mother. And I wonder what kind of case they had to deal with to have to put this into motion. I mean, you do hear of children murdering their parents. And I don't know if that was what happened back then, but it was seen as a very serious situation here. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So this is speaking of kidnapping, another capital offense. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So it isn't just striking the father, it is speaking harshly against them. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So even if there is attempted murder and this guy survives, the only thing that the offender would have to do is pay for the time that he wasn't able to work. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Ultimately, this was to guard against the abuse of slaves. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, so this would be by case of miscarriage, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this is what is known as lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation. And some people think that this is a very harsh kind of punishment, but really this was put in place so that people wouldn't take advantage of seeking vengeance. So for example, you can only take an eye for an eye and nothing more. That's what they're saying here. It's saying the punishment fits the crime. So it's not for any excessive punishment. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. That's interesting to me. I wonder how many slaves ended up knocking their teeth out to be able to be set free. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, so in other words, if the owner knows that it has this kind of nature in it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So in other words, if you neglect the fact that your ox is prone to goring people and you don't deal with it, you don't keep it 
away from people, you don't put a fence around it and it goes out and gores somebody again, you will die. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels, which is known in the Bible as the price of a slave, of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now, when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. So, again, here is God dealing with cases of neglect. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. So in the end, everything that we do has a consequence. And we see that God values the sanctity of life. And this is why he sets into motion rules and regulations to be able to protect that within society. So let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. Why would God set such a harsh boundary line between himself and the people? How does God's covenant with Israel apply to us as Christians? How do you view God's majesty, power, and holiness? Has it been watered down or treated casually? How do you view the Ten Commandments? Is it archaic in your mind or still relevant today? Do you struggle with any in particular? In looking at each commandment, how do you see God's love and protection on display? And how do you view God's heart behind the laws of Moses? How do they shape our ethics and societal morals today? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the boundaries that you have set up to protect us as your children. What a privilege it is to live in a time when we can freely come into your presence without fear of stepping into something that we aren't prepared for. You allow us to come as we are, and we are so grateful for that. But I pray, God, that we never take your holiness and majesty for granted, because none of that has changed. You are still as mighty as ever, and your glory is still untouchable. Yet because of what Jesus did, we have the keys to heaven, and we need not fear. We know that you value us just as much as you do the Hebrew people, as we have been grafted into the promises you have given them like wild olive branches. We are therefore your treasured possession and have the same calling to holiness and obedience. I pray that we will live out our lives in reverence and obedience to all of your commands. And while we may not have a visible display of your glory or even an audible sound of your voice, we still see and hear you just as clearly as they did. We are so grateful that we have the word, that we can apply it in modern day. For you are unchanging and we stand in awe of that today, knowing that everything we read, it isn't fiction, it's not a fairy tale. And we know that while we are not held to the law of Moses, we are held to an even higher standard of love, which is where every single one of your commandments is birthed from. Because you love us, you desire to keep us safe. Because you love us, you have set up boundaries so we can flourish. And I pray that we will have an even greater understanding of that, that you never impose anything to limit, but rather to set free your people. We know that a life of obedience will lead to freedom, whereas disobedience will lead to bondage. 
So I pray that every area of our lives will center around you. Forgive us, Lord, where we may have created an idol out of something. And if we don't realize we have, will you show us where we may be holding something in higher regard than we should? I pray that we are able to reroute those things to be able to bring you glory. And I pray that we will always pursue a life of honesty and integrity and honor and high morals. May we live a consecrated, distinct, and set-apart life that radiates your goodness and your glory. I pray that we will be positive contributors to society, imparting good where we live and work and play. So we fully trust in your unwavering commitment to justice. Therefore, we don't need to seek vengeance, for we know how much you value the fair treatment of others. We know it doesn't always happen, for we live in a broken world. But one day, every single wrong will be made right. So help us to keep our heads down and focused on doing what we can do to help maintain the social order that you so desire. So we thank you today for this word, Lord, helping us understand it a little bit more. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing. And there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die. But I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer. And I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.